0: DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an Associate Professor and the Academic Dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California. He also serves as the Academic Advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church, and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is also the author of Hidden Mountain, Secret Garden, a Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we discuss the writings of St. Teresa of Avalon, whose spiritual classic, The Way of Perfection, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, thank you once again for joining me.
1: It's wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. This is an exciting series.
0: I'm so looking forward to really breaking open The Way of Perfection. It is a work that was originally written for her sisters. So do you think she was anticipating the rest of us following along?
1: If not explicitly, at least implicitly, because even from the very beginning of the uh, of her first foundations, there were lay people who were kind of implicated in this reform with her. She has uh, letters to all kinds of different people who are helping her. And so although she's writing this directly for her sisters, I think she's also mindful that some of the lay people who also want to live life of deeper prayer who are part of a renewal of mental prayer in Spain at this time, uh, will be edified by some of the things she writes. So she's writing it under obedience. She she discloses that she doesn't feel like she has a lot to say, but she'll say it anyway because she's been told to. At the same time, she knows what's compelling her is the fact that her sisters need some guidance. And I think she knows that the rest of us are going to benefit from this guidance in some way too.
0: Just a couple of opening moments before we get into chapter one, it's called The Protestations and the Prologue, and she's establishing the need to clarify that she is a loyal daughter to the church, that she is going to offer up everything with the best of intention that is in line with the teachings of the church.
1: And this is a very important thing. We've we've mentioned uh, previously. The Protestant Reformation is going on, and there are a lot of Catholics who are leaving the church. And part of the reason why they're leaving is they're coming under the influence of very charismatic people who've had an experience of the Lord of some kind. I don't think we need to say that they didn't have one. They had some kind of. But because they weren't doctrinally well formed because they didn't know the full truth that the Catholic Church teaches, they misunderstood their experiences and what their experiences meant, and that misunderstanding they passed on to others, and it resulted in a fragmentation of the body of Christ. It resulted in, uh, in people leaving the Catholic Church. Truth always brings into unity, and she wants to repropose the truth to her sisters and get them to live the truth because she believes that uh, by doing this, this is already a source of unity. As they do this also, their prayers will become more powerful, and so that the preachers and teachers who are trying to win souls back or help souls rethink some of the judgments they've made, that they they will at least be able to have good doctrine to understand the things they're experiencing. If preachers and teachers are not prayed for, they don't have... The grace, the strength from above to win hearts over. Teaching or preaching is a moment of actual grace. When you share the truth with another person, it can change their life forever. But for that actual grace to be shared, to be received, to be transmitted faithfully, to be received without any obstacles, that takes prayer. Teresa Vavila is trying to get her sisters now to engage in a way of life that is oriented around pr- this kind of prayer that can be a renewal for the church. In order to do that, though, she needs to assure the public who might be reading this that she's a faithful daughter of the church. She's not claiming that her experience is over and above the teachings of the Catholic Church. She's submitting everything to the authority of the Catholic Church. So if she's wrong, and she might be, she believes, then just correct me and I'll, uh, I'll listen to your correction. Otherwise, I'm doing this under obedience for the edification of my sisters. And that way people reading this won't have a mistaken understanding that she's a self-promoter or that she is trying to market some new gig in the church of some kind or another. Her desire is nothing other, and I think we can take her her word for it. it, it is nothing other than to be a faithful daughter of the church. She's doing this under obedience and she's doing it for the edification of her sisters. And I think she's doing it also with the hope that we'll be edified by it, too.
0: She's reassuring the sisters, even in these writings, that she is submitting this to a higher authority as well, that she is presenting what this is her experience, she's doing it under obedience, and that she will turn it over to those who she said are more, more learned, those in authority, Dominicans or Jesuits, to to test it. And that's not unlike other great writers, in this particular case, female writers like Hildegard von Bingen, mm-hmm. the same type of thing, and so many others, even St. Angelo Flenio, the, the list could go on and on. They've received, and they turn it over, and then they wait for the great whatever, whatever will happen with it. And that's something we can learn even today, isn't it, Anthony? I mean, that, that importance of allowing that, that faithfulness to trust that it will be brought to fruition if that's God's will.
1: Yeah, and also the humility to submit something and realize that you could be mistaken, too. So, you know, at the time she's writing this, her work, La Vida, or The Life, is being examined by the Inquisition. She almost gets into a little bit of trouble because of some of the things she's written in that book except for the intervention of St. John of Avila, who was so well-respected that when the Inquisitors heard what he had to say, they backed down in uh, La Vida. They decided not to destroy uh, La Vida or impose ecclesiastical sanctions on Teresa. But while those decisions are being made, those haven't been made yet, she has already been asked to write this Way of Perfection, And rather than become timid about it and say, oh, but, you know, I don't know if I should be because my work is being explored by the Inquisition, she obeys her superior and she writes something that's for the edification of others, knowing that she might be, uh, she might well be exposed to somebody who just simply doesn't know what they're talking about, might be humiliated and even thrown into prison. It's important to note, La Vida and the Way of Perfection, she wrote them both under obedience, and the fruits of her obedience could have landed her in jail. But she didn't let herself be intimidated by that. She had the courage to step out, do what she needed to do, to be obedient, and to be obedient in a way that really built built up the faith of the people at her time, but also builds up our faith today.
0: And that's why in this very opening chapter, chapter 1, the very first part of, of the way of perfection, she talks about the importance of, of founding a convent and that everyone, th- there is an order. There is a, a strict uh, need to follow these particular teachings because it, in, in the long run, it's a gift, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so uh, the contemplative life uh, where, you, where you choose to set yourself apart is a life that is, is chosen out of freedom for love of Jesus. And um, and it requires discipline and sacrifice and embracing a lot, lot of hardship. If love isn't moving your heart towards this, you can never live it out. In fact, Teresa of, of Avila will look at the way of perfection for her is how do you grow into perfect love? And so she sees the Carmelite monastery has a school for love, a, a, a place where you go to learn how to be perfect in your love of God and love of neighbor.
0: It, it is compelling, isn't it, that even in Chapter 1, she's not only writing to the sisters, but then it also becomes a time of prayer for her where she focuses her vision on my Redeemer, my, my Savior, my King. All of a sudden, there's a moment where she's no longer talking to the sisters but she's leading by example in that she fashions the prayer, and she gives a model of even how that relationship, that dialogue, should occur.
1: So this, this is one of the beauties of, uh, of, of her writings. Uh, her relationship with the Lord is immensely personal. I once heard somebody say that Catholics don't believe in a personal relationship with Jesus. But if we look at the way that St. Augustine writes... And St. Teresa of Avila, I believe St. Teresa of Avila actually, on this particular point, is influenced by St. Augustine. Uh, both authors have no problem, right in the middle of an explanation, of all of a sudden shifting into a prayer. And and you're right, in chapter one she does that. and Very particularly, the prayer that she offers is a, a prayer of concern and distress, actually. That people who know the Lord rather than respond to him generously, are abandoning his church. And so she cries out to him, you know, Lord, how can this be? You know, and it's a plea for help. And then she, she, she goes on to say in this chapter, and this is what we need to do is, this is our job in the church, sisters. Our job is to pray to Jesus for these people who, um, who are turning away from the church and turning away from the Lord after all the goodness he's shown them. And our prayers will be important in healing the church. Some of the damage that has been done is irreparable, she says. But she doesn't believe all of it is. And she believes that in times of great distress and difficulty, God can still intervene. And I I think we need that kind of faith and confidence today, too.
0: Sounds like the new evangelization. I think so. So as we move forward in chapter 1, chapter 2... She is helping not only her sisters, but helping us begin to differentiate between the world pulling at us and beginning to let go of those things we thought were so important and trying to reorient our vision, isn't she?
1: Well, um, yeah. What in, in Chapter 2, uh, this is the chapter where she, she talks about um, poverty. And, uh, in, uh, in this, basically she's giving a very scriptural admonition. You'd find this in the gospel of Luke, but don't worry about what it is you need to eat. And don't, don't worry about your worldly affairs and uh, what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy. This isn't your, your concern. Your concern is to keep your eyes on your spouse. Already, uh, we mentioned a little bit earlier that you know, the way of perfection is the way to perfect charity. Uh, one of the things that can de- destroy our love for God or diminish it or prevent it from becoming perfect is when we are anxious about material things. When we are anxious about what we need to eat or how we're living or how other people are living or and we're comparing ourselves to them and, and all of this, so if the more anxious we are about material things, the more likely we are to take our eyes off Jesus. And as we take our eyes off Jesus, our love becomes less perfect every time. Teresa wants her sisters to live the evangelical council of poverty to the fullest extent that they can, even to the extent of not worrying about what they're going to eat. And the purpose for that isn't because things are bad or food is bad or anything like that. This is Spain after all the food. The bread is pretty good. Um, the purpose for this is she wants them to be free to keep their eyes on Jesus. If they can keep their eyes on him, then the possibility of growing in love opens up for them.
0: We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app, which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from inside the pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, The Chaplet of St. Michael and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola
1: Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen.
0: with Dr. Anthony Lawless. She would say, It is when I possess least that I have the fewest worries, and the the Lord knows that, as far as I can tell. I am more afflicted when there is excess of anything than when there is lack of it. Mm. I mean, she could be writing to us today. I mean, truly, isn't that what, for many of us, we're so bogged down, particularly in our culture, with things
1: yes that's our our problem is that there's things and the honor that comes with things we, uh, we live in a society in america it, you know if you live in the right house you drive the right kind of car you're kind of respected if you don't you're not the, the most extreme thing is if you think about people today who are mentally ill and can't manage to to live in a home and so they're homeless and on the streets and mentally ill we tend not to honor them. We tend to see them as an inconvenience. The fact that we can look on another human being like that says something about who we are and where we're going as a people. She's not saying that poverty is good in itself. But what she is saying is that a preoccupation with things and with honor, with comfort, preoccupation with these things robs you of charity. When you judge the world from those things, whether people have them or not, or whether you have them or not, you've already diminished your charity. On the other hand, for those who well embrace the blessing of holy poverty, she, uh, she says, well, she says this, she says, it would be a wonder if any poor person were honored in the world. On the contrary, even though he may be worthy of honor, he is little esteemed. True poverty brings with it overwhelming honor. Poverty that is chosen for God alone has no need of pleasing, uh, of pleasing anyone but him. It is certain that in having need of no one, a person has many friends. I have become clearly aware of this through experience. So what is she saying there? Well, have you noticed that in your own life, that when you grasp for friends, you push them away. When you grasp, when you're worried about food, you never have enough food. When you're worried about what kind of car you drive, your car is never the right car. When you're worried about what kind of house you live in, your house is never the right house. When we're not concerned about those things, when we've set our heart on the things of God, and we have a freedom around those things. No matter what our house is, we're content with it. No matter what the car we drive is, uh, we're fine with it. Unless, of course, it doesn't work. And then we might have to do something about it. And when we're content and we're, we're grateful to God with the friends that he's given us, we don't have to grasp for them. And what happens when you're not grasping for your friends is you end up with more friends. And she's kind of suggesting maybe it's the true about these other things, too. When you're not worried about what you eat, there's always plenty of food. And when you're not worried about your house, God always gives you the most wonderful place to live, even a car. (laughs) If you need a car, he will, uh, this is something important for your life and important for your sanctity. He will make sure you get the car you need. I'm thinking right now, there's a gentleman who was a student of mine. Uh, He didn't have a car. He was a student, of course, didn't have a lot of money for it. He wasn't overly anxious about the car. What he was anxious about was doing God's will. He felt the Lord was calling him to move somewhere and to begin a particular kind of, of work. He said, "Well, God will provide the car that I need." And he got just the car he needed for the work that the Lord had him to do, had for him to do. Because he wasn't worried about it, he received the gift that he needed when it was time to receive the gift. Teresa of Avila is trying to direct her sisters to that same kind of freedom. When we're not worried about things and anxious about things, God, uh, we free God to give us all, uh, uh, surprise us in all kinds of ways by his bountifulness to us. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be industrious. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be grateful when we receive things. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be wise and prudent in the, our use of things. All of, the, all of that, though, isn't the same as being anxious over it or letting it preoccupy our thoughts or grab hold of our hearts. And she wants our hearts to be free for a deeper devotion to the Lord.
0: Because she's not suggesting, Anthony, is she like some other type of movements or maybe even religions where somehow there's a, there's a total freedom, a detachment from everything and to almost to an extent where there's a void. Or there is a, you know, to nothing. She would say not to possess money or things, but desire to possess him. Mm. I mean, the focus is always on Christ for her.
1: In the passage that I just read, the poverty is for, for love of him alone. And so it's not uh, because material things are bad or having a car or a house or any of those wonderful things is bad. They're wonderful blessings. But when we worry over them or are anxious over them, they grab hold of our hearts. And we, we end up in a certain way worshiping them or making sacrifices for the things we worry about. It's not that those things aren't good things. It's just that they're not worthy of... Our uh, adoration—they're <laughs> mm-hmm. not—they're not worthy of our worship. Only the Lord is, and and those things all exist to serve Him. Holy poverty, out of love for Him alone. Uh, uh, there's a physical reality for Carmelite nuns, but for the rest of us, who maybe we have to live with the world of things, it's about a freedom an interior freedom towards things so that these things don't distract from our love of God, from our devotion to him. And then these things, we can use them properly in our lives.
0: Isn't that interesting? We have to remind ourselves, she's speaking to Carmelite sisters in a convent that have given what would appear to the world up everything for him. Mm. And yet she's imploring them to give up even
1: more. Yeah, yeah. She uh, she says... If exteriorly we do not carry out this practice so perfectly, the practice of holy poverty. Um, let us strive to do so interiorly. So if exteriorly we uh, it's necessary for us to have certain things and even comforts around, well, let's strive to have this kind of poverty interiorly. Let's not let these things, be what we're thinking about or become our obsession. Let's not let anxiety over these things rob us of our availability to Christ. And she goes on. Life lasts but a couple of hours. Exceedingly great will be the reward. If we should do nothing else but what the Lord counseled us to do, the pay of the just, being able in some way to imitate him would be great, so what what she's saying is that the Lord is the one whos counseled us to poverty, so poverty is an evangelical counsel. Carmelite lights make a vow to live by poverty, but that evangelical counsel, blessed are the poor, uh, says Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, he says again the the evangelical counsel of poverty, those who have given up everything. Unless you deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciples. Those who follow Jesus in this way, who deny themselves, at least interiorly, their reward is great Uh, because when you do this, you are imitating Christ. Christ Jesus, whom we know in Philippians, uh, did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but rather emptied himself and took the form of a slave, uh, becoming like us in all things but sin. Uh, he humbled himself even unto the cross. Well, we also need to empty ourselves and humble ourselves to the cross. Um, uh, poverty, choosing to live not for the sake of things, but choosing to live for the sake of the Lord alone and to use all the things in our lives for that purpose. This is what allows us to imitate Christ uh, in a greater degree. And she's saying here, and that is the reward, the payment of the just. If you do this, you will be more like Jesus.
0: She seems to be following in the footsteps, too, of another great foundress who came maybe 300 years before, and I'm thinking of St. Clair of Assisi, who would not allow the communities to take endowments, that anything that came in would have to immediately be turned around and given out. And she is imploring her sisters here as well to have that same type of trust. I mean, ultimately, in not having that type of uh, anchor, as it were, uh, of the endowment or so much funds in, in establishing a house.
1: Well, Saint Clair, in particular, on on that point, she actually, you know, said our houses don't have to have great and beautiful. Uh, physical walls to enclose them. Uh, the, she she said this, that St. Teresa is actually quoting or or referring to St. Clair. She says, how St. Clair says, says St. Teresa, great walls are those of poverty. She said that it was with walls like these and those of humility that she wanted to enclose her monasteries. Surely, if poverty is truly observed, recollection and all other virtues will be much better fortified than with very sumptuous buildings. Be careful of buildings like these. I beg of you for the love of God and by his precious blood. And if I can say this in good conscience, may such a building fall to the ground the day you construct one. (laughs) So she wants, uh, uh, she's not saying buildings are bad, but the most important thing that will protect the monastery, and this is true of our family. The most important thing that will protect our families is uh, poverty and humility. And by poverty, I mean the spirit of poverty where we're not living as a family for material things or the main thing that's driving my career right now isn't making more and more money uh, so that we can live comfortably or so that people will honor us or think highly of us. These, These things, the honors that come with it are all an illusion. They pass away. But the poverty that makes us vulnerable to Christ and helps us imitate him, the reward of which is a deeper imitation of Christ, this kind of poverty and the humility that goes with it, when you have that protecting your home, um, nothing can come against your home. Nothing can ever rob you of the love and the joy that you have together. And this is what St. Teresa wants for her, her monasteries.
0: All I could think of was that that moment in the life of Elizabeth of the Trinity, and here she's dying, and they're in their monastery. And there's all the the war, uh, social upheaval is occurring all around them. And in a very real way, there was a protection for them in the simplicity of the home that she would be able to die Within the confines of that of that house that was built in that in such a way
1: mm. yeah well it's an interesting thing that monastery doesn't stand anymore it's gone mm. uh, but it wasn't removed because of some of the things that were that had got that would go on. Um, if you think about it, that was nineteen o six World War one happens, but even before World War one, even while t- Elizabeth is dying, the government is th- passed laws that would exile all the Carmelites and all the religious from France and the government would confiscate all their buildings and, and so Elizabeth is dying in this cloud of uncertainty and the future of the community is hanging over her head then we know about world war 1 and we know about world war 2 and do you know that convent uh, never closed through any of those things it, uh, that convent remained and it was only after World War II that they eventually moved out of the city of Dijon uh, into the countryside, only because the monastery was, the buildings were old and decrepit, and it would have cost them more to rebuild, repair the buildings than it would be, be to have a quieter uh, convent in the countryside. That's what they decided to do. Well, one of, I account I that to the fact that Elizabeth helped her convent. Stay focused on Jesus, and not to become anxious about what they were going to eat, or how they're going to be taken care of, or what would happen to them because of political this political thing or that political thing. She kept their eyes focused and fixed on Jesus, and by keeping their eyes fixed, fixated on Him, uh, uh, they found everything they needed. The whole world fell apart around them. But they stood firm, because their eyes were fixed on him.
0: Yeah, Isn't that something that we really struggle with, and to bring it back around to how this particular chapter can affect us, is that as we try, and it, when we have those things that bring us anxiety of, of how will we pay for this, how will this come to be, that in some ways that can consume our prayer. And we don't realize that we are in need of trust and that and in that relationship he will take care of us. And that can be a real block to being able to relate and commune with him. Is that what Teresa is trying to help them to be free of?
1: I, I think so. And and remember so um you know, moving ahead we're, we're kind of moving it now into kind of chapter three. Um, the 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 reason why they need this freedom for this kind of devotion is because their prayers are vital for the life of the church. The church isn't kind of just sailing along and things going great. The broken body of Christ, it's falling apart and people are leaving communion with the church and they um, uh, and they've been fed, a uh, bad doctrine, preachers aren't compelling, teachers aren't able to win hearts. And so her answer to this, she's not a teacher, she's not a preacher. Her answer is that she has decided to pursue the perfection of the love of God that she can. And she's trying to get her sisters to do the same. And, and part of the, this kind of love for the Lord What it opens up is the ability to ask for things from God in such a way that he can generously provide answers. The more perfectly we love the Lord, the more he is free to answer our prayer because we are able to ask him with a singleness of heart and a readiness to receive the blessings that he wants to give.
0: You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to support our efforts. Most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Moore.